Good morning. Um, if you guys have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and grab those or your phones or whatever. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. And uh, when the ushers finish with the buckets, they can come back with, with Bibles. So if you need one in the next minute or two, raise your hand and uh, get one of those. Um, we're, in, we're in the story of David and Goliath, and that's the entirety of chapter 17. So I think you're going to want one, something to read and hang out with as we look at some, some different uh, portions of this narrative here. But I'm, I'm very excited for this. David and Goliath, right, probably a top five famous story in your Bible. Uh, if you think of ones that even if you've never opened a Bible, people have heard of. You got Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah and the fish. There's like an animal theme. Uh, and then you got David and Goliath, right, probably one of those everybody's heard of. Super well known, so popular that it's even gained like a, the, the story has become a phrase and the phrase has gained a, a popular secular uh, meaning to it, right? David and Goliath. It's the story of little guy beats big guy, some kind of underdog hero thing. It always comes up around uh, pr- pretty soon here actually as we're almost to March Madness and all that kind of stuff. And so you've got you know, just this story of something that shouldn't have happened. It'd be like Everett Community College beats Duke, right? And like, woo, yeah, we, so we write headlines, little guy beats big guy. It's so exciting. Um, I think with that, that sort of trickled into uh, just a casual reading. If, if you're not careful, if you're not paying attention, we can take what's kind of become popular, especially in the sports world or, or just a, a movie kind of theme. And, and a, a traditional, you know, a, a casual application of the David and Goliath story could easily become one, one of a couple things. You know, if we've got that, that phrase in mind or just that underdog story, there's, there's two sort of ways to, to view this story. If you're an observer, right, cheer for the underdog. How fun it is when, when somebody wins who's not supposed to. Or when somebody overcomes a barrier that looked really big. That's, that's exciting. They've, they've found a way. They've mustered up some power. They did something impressive. Uh, or on the flip side, if you want to make it a little bit of a personal application, if you're David, right, face your giants. Face your fears. Go conquer things. Don't visualize defeat. Visualize success. Um, but reading this many times, I, I had to stop and ask, and I don't know if you've ever stopped and asked, why, why is this here? Why is this narrative in the Bible? Besides, you know, the reality that uh, it happened and the events of human history were recorded, but, but why is this narrative about a young boy with a rock and a tall guy with armor even in your Bible? Is it just to tell you to be brave? Is that why we have this chapter-long, very detailed story about David versus Goliath? Is the primary takeaway from God's sovereign will in the events of David and Goliath and his divine hand in, in the recording of this in our scripture um, that, that you would visualize success and not be afraid? I think there's something more. I think there's a lot more. And I hope by the end of this that that you might consider with me that there's more to this story as well. And so as we dive in, I want to confirm that it is 100%, 
a story about courage and about defeating an enemy. It is not 100% about you being like David. So let's take a look. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkoth and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Who's excited already? Who's like, woo, this is the best story in the Old Testament? Um, here's something interesting, though. It's, it's right, a lot of these obvi- immediately make you want to tune out. But if you pay attention... The Philistines are camped at a city whose name doesn't matter if you can actually pronounce it or not. But it belongs to Judah. That's one of the tribes of Israel. This is not armies marched out and went to go on a campaign. They've already been invaded. The Philistines are here. They're fighting Israel. God's people are at war. I thought that interesting. Verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. Uh, That's going to be roughly nine feet tall. I'm sure you've heard that before. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's going to be about 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his leg and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. So I'll stop there for a second. Um, So we've got this guy named Goliath who's introduced to us first in this narrative. And he emerges from camp, and there's a very particular word attached to him. So there's no actual warfare going on. There's a camp, there's a camp. But then we're introduced to verse 4, and I think we've got a slide for this, a champion named Goliath of Gath. That's a very interesting word in Hebrew. Champion literally means a man between the two. Benaim. So a man between the two came out. This was the representative. This was the one who stood in for the entire army. And he comes out to uh, display all of his impressive features. Right? We've got the weight of his armor. We've got the height. We've got the amount of weapons. All of these things. This guy was imposing. He was impenetrable. But don't miss this part. Uh, he, he also kind of represents the best of what the world has to offer. So while everyone at this point is working with things like iron, uh, would, would be good to have, you know, better than stone or, or bone for sure. Um, Goliath has bronze, which is high tech at this point. Bronze is a very strong and solid metal, and he's got it everywhere. 
Goliath's got really strong, high-tech stuff, and not just some. It's to the point of being ridiculous. His helmet is entirely made of bronze. His 125-pound coat of armor is made of bronze. He's got bronze all over his legs. He has not one, not two, but three weapons that he's just carrying around. The point of his javelin is 15 pounds, right? You ever tried to throw a bowling ball like a spear? That's really heavy. Goliath in his armor represents those who believe the path to success is give me the best that I can get and give me a lot of it. So here he comes, and here comes the Philistines. Here's our guy. He's got the best, and he's also wearing way more of it than you. And he's going to assure victory. So then, Goliath says what he's going to say in verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with, him, with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So the champion Goliath steps forward and he demands one himself. Goliath says, where's yours? Send me a champion. Um, this is a challenge that's actually a, a bit unusual for ancient warfare. One-on-one uh, -on -one battle of champions, right? We've seen it in uh, particular movies and, and you can draw up scenarios with, with gladiators and things like that. It, it wasn't actually all that common. Uh, this is, you know, we, we have a lot of wars and a lot of battles in the Bible. We don't actually have a lot of this. So it's actually quite humanitarian, right? Saves a lot of life. One verse one instead of thousands verse thousands. Seems like a pretty good idea. It, it, however, wasn't done all that often. But the challenge itself is very simple. If you're stronger than me, we'll be under your power. If I'm stronger than you, you'll be under our power. Let's go. One on one. And then I don't know if you caught this. But at the end of that challenge came one of the greater indictments in all of the Bible. That was verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So we spent a week or two kind of getting the backstory of David, right? As um, different members of our teaching team have been leading us to this point through this journey. And, and uh, I remember Scott talked a couple weeks ago in particular about King Saul. Do you remember from earlier in this series, what was one of the primary reasons that Saul was made king? We have a verse for this. Um, he was tall. It's... Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. It says that Saul was, yeah, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here's Israel. 
Here's King Saul. He's the tall guy. And out comes Goliath. And Saul's a coward. Here's the thing about our enemy. He is real. He is, he is very strong. And he's good at subtly convincing us that it all, all, it all works a little bit like Goliath's challenge. I think sometimes we're, 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 we're wrongly tempted to believe that sin works much this same way. The things that make us desire sin, called temptation, work this same way. That if I'm strong enough, I can defeat it, and it will be under my power. And if I'm not strong enough, it defeats me, and I am under its power. I think that view of sin is not of the Bible, it is not of the Lord, it is demonic, and it ruins people. Um, I've sat with teenagers who uh, have had to, I've had to have the conversation with them, and they've explained to me in, in wake of a, a youth pastor falling from grace, having an affair, and leaving, and they said, well, if he can't do it, I can't do it in context of giving up on their faith and of why try anymore. That guy couldn't do it. And I've sat with uh, men and pastors and learned the process and especially had it explained to me that we, we set ourselves up to fail if we think the world works this way, if we pray this way, in the fight against pornography, if your prayer is, God, make me strong enough that I will win every time, you're going to be disappointed. God does not set people up to become so strong that temptation is no longer a deal. Where is that in Scripture? God does not say, if you follow me, you'll become invincible. God does not say, I will strengthen you so much that you can defeat any obstacle that comes your way without second thought. While Goliath in his armor represents the worldly approach to success, Goliath in this challenge represents a reality that there is an enemy that would rule over you, but that you have the ability to rule over it. But not by getting stronger. So here comes the second character in this story, and David stands in as champion. Now David's going to show up and and then from where we left off, the next 20 verses are David getting caught up on the story and the events, uh, having an interaction with his brother. And so we're going to grab the story in verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. 
and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So notice at the beginning when we start, David says, I'll, I'll go take him on. And Saul still has the exact same approach. He's, got, he's still thinking the same way. You're not strong enough. His first thought is, well, you can't fight him. You're just a boy. And this guy is a seasoned warrior. But David's considering two things. The first is his belief that the Lord will deliver him. Right, he says something that, that seems a little bit maybe like boasting in his own strength, boasting in his confidence, but, but he grounds it in this at the end there, verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Gives, gives strength to God twice. And then another thing happens between Saul and David. So we continue, verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor, he put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So the first that happens is Saul says, you can't go, you're not strong enough. And David says, well, the Lord will deliver me. And the second thing that happens is Saul says, okay, well, then I better give you the best of what we have to offer, right? He's doing the Goliath thing. Get, take the armor at least. Here's my armor. It's the king's. It's the best. And, and David tries it. And the second thing we see is he does not want to go at this the way that Saul wants him to go about it. He can't. Do that. Uh, we're not there yet. Um, I love strategy. Always have. Uh, apparently I was given a rope when I was really little and I used to tie up things in my house. My three-year-old daughter has just started doing the same thing, making obstacle courses and stuff everywhere. Um, I played on a chess team when I was six, which is unfortunately a very real sentence. Um, I did do that. Uh, Lord of the Rings escape rooms, puzzles, all of that stuff. I love it. But strategy only takes you so far. There are things in life where strategy alone does not work. Uh, moment of honesty, fellas, how many of you have ever honestly written down even or at least planned out a conversation with a girl that you wanted to talk to and when the moment comes, whatever you wrote down is not working. You can't remember it, they don't care, you don't say it right. Strategy has limitations, right? In part just because of life and, and the complexities of humans and all that kind of stuff, but there's another part of it too. Strategy doesn't always work because there are some things, there's a lot of things that only God can do. Whatever you've planned, however strong you think you are, whatever advice that you've received, 
there's stuff that only God can do. And Saul gives David all his armor, something that could be categorized as conventional wisdom, a backup plan, or strength based in this world, and David can't use it. And the word is so interesting to me. He, he says he can't go because he's not tested them. He's unfamiliar. It's foreign to him. Um, I thought this was particularly interesting because I re- still remember vividly the, the movie uh, David and Goliath from the Veggie Tales. And, and this is an example of the traditional application of that, right? Why does David, little, you know, asparagus David not go? It's because it was all too heavy. And he couldn't see, right? The helmet like falls down over his head. That's not what the Bible says. It didn't say he couldn't use Saul's armor because it was too big and heavy. David says he can't use it because he's not tested it. It's unfamiliar. He is familiar with God's will. It's not too heavy. David was more comfortable with his past experiences with God than with this new thing. That Saul thinks will work. And so we have the encounter, the famous encounter with an unarmored David versus nine foot tank man. Uh, So, verse 45 is where this kind of happens. And so they go to battle. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. And so for how famous this story is, the actual moment, the battle is is almost anticlimactic. They don't even meet each other. They just start, and it's over. (laughs) But this refrain that's repeated a couple of times, right, we saw it in Verse 46, he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And he says it again in 47, the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, but the battle is the Lord's. So they fight, David wins, enemies, or the enemy runs away in defeat. Now think back to how this started with two camps on either side of a mountain and a valley in between. And an army with a champion, and an, uh, and an army hiding in fear. But what just happened is the people of Israel won a great victory without lifting a finger. It was done for them while they were still scared up on the mountain 
unable to do anything. It's a story about courage and about heroes and about defeating an undefeatable enemy. Goliath demands a champion, someone to stand in between. He, he, he required a champion, one who would go into the valley, stand in between two sides, who would go down to fight on his own on behalf of everyone else. If he won, that counted for everybody, and they gained authority over their enemy. If he lost, that also counted for everybody, and they would be under the authority, uh, they would be slaves of another. But if he won, freedom. And I think that brings us to Jesus, God's chosen champion. The global movement of Christianity centers around the belief that the God of the universe walked down from his eternal celestial home to stand in a valley to fight a fight on behalf of others against an undefeatable enemy to, to win victory for a people who wouldn't fight on their own, couldn't fight on their own, and his victory counted for them. This is littered through the New Testament. I've chosen three areas to look at. Um, the first one comes from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. But that while we, uh, just the right time, while we were still sinners, or while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And from Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's so much of David that we see captured perfectly in Jesus. And then the last one from Ephesians, um, I believe chapter 3, not to him who is able to do far more, far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the power that is at work with, uh, within us. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So there is a powerful one. There is a champion. There is a victory. His name is Jesus and he fought for us. He won on our behalf. So that's Jesus. Those are God's promises. What do we learn? What do we learn from this narrative and its culmination in the uh, sacrificial victory of Jesus Christ? I think the first thing that we're reminded of is that David and Goliath, as it's popularly become, is not a good metaphor. Now, don't get mad at ESPN when they use it. That's fine. It has its own place there. But the reason David and Goliath can't be, yeah, go face your giants, be brave, be strong, be bold, is because the gospel does not make you confident in yourself. It makes you dependent on Jesus. 
It's a reminder of a spiritual reality. Getting stronger in the ways of the world does not defeat the world-based obstacle or enemy or fear in front of you. And I think Goliath stands in pretty well for all of those. Whether it's physically, whether it's positionally, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, right? There's something. You can say, well, that's, that's great, but it's kind of idealistic. <laughs> okay, so tomorrow's Monday, and we got to go back to battle. Whether it's a boss, your kids, loneliness, shortage of money, sickness, overworked schedule, friendships that aren't where you want them to be. There's, there's something that stands in your way between. God does not want us to sit and live in misery. And there are, there are real struggles, real obstacles, real things that feel like they're preventing us from moving forward, preventing us from even living. Whether it's something like that or whether it's something like a temptation that threatens you to think something evil, to say something evil, to look at something evil, to spend time in evil ways, to do or to be something evil and something that threatens to take you away from following Jesus. What do we do? One of the things that stood out to me about the second half of 1 Samuel 17 and, and the battle of David and Goliath is it seems like it hinges quite a bit on a really simple question, which is what, what would you consider a successful outcome? So there's a battle to be fought. There's an enemy in the way. There's a, there's a struggle taking place. There's a risk to be had. What would you consider a successful outcome? Well, I would wonder first, why did David fight in the first place? It's here a couple times. We read one in verse 26. He, he said, who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He says that a couple of times. So th this is wrong. This guy should not make us fear and forget God. This is wrong. Someone should do something. And so it was just a simple compulsion. Something needs to happen. And why was David confident? We read it three different times. He says multiple times, the Lord will deliver. And I think that's enormous. David did not say to Saul, he did not say to Goliath, I got this. He said the Lord will deliver. And so what's implied there, and, and what we see in the acting out is, is David's really walking towards Goliath saying, I got, I, not I got this, he's saying, God's got this whether I do or don't. That's the, that's the confidence shift. That's it right there. This reality was David's source of courage. He was not self-confident. He was God-confident. And I would say, too, remember, right, as we're comparing this and we're looking at Jesus, there's a moment in the New Testament, too, that I've always found so fascinating. 
towards the end of his life, as, as Jesus has gathered just a couple of his disciples, and he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few hours before he's betrayed and captured and arrested and crucified. And, and Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if, and if you remember that story, as he's praying the third time, the book of Luke says he, he was in so much angst that he sweat drops of blood. Man, Jesus was nervous. He did not want to do the thing. He was scared. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so in the middle of a fear, in the, in the middle of, man, there's got to be a better way. What's, what's the strategy here? Can we come up with something else? Um, but his ultimate trust that God will deliver, God's got this, even though, and it's a little bit cheating to use Jesus because he knows what's happening. And he knows that he doesn't got this. He knows where he's headed. Jesus will die. But God's got this. Bravery, I, I think, is found in the doing and not so much in the feeling. See, if we rely on, on what could be an application of David and Goliath, that, that God will just give you courage, that God will make you strong enough, if we're just waiting for that, then we'll always be waiting. We'll always be waiting until it feels like everything is under control and now I can move forward. And that's not what we have over and over and over in Scripture. For the Christian, a lack of courage, or, or what's called in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, a shrinking back, is always lack of faith in a promise of God. But on the flip side... True courage is that faith in the promises of God and especially in the reassurance of what he's already done. Jesus is the victor. He will always be the victor. And so out of here, the, the, the question that I, I came back to, to to ask even myself is... Um, Am I courageous, specifically backed by the promises of God? Do I believe what God says enough to do the right thing, moving forward with the assurance that God's got this, whether or not I have everything in, in place? And I think that's where the gospel calls us back to, is not waiting for a strengthening, not waiting around for an assurance of self, but to actually step into those things that are scary, those giants that are bigger, that battle that is outside of our control, and to depend and trust on the promises of Jesus Christ. I want to do the right thing. I want to follow you in faith, Lord. So let's pray. Even that there, God, I ask that you would um, help that be our prayer as we consider this moment in history with your people. And this reminder uh, that you, you fought on our behalf. And that you are the God who wins victories. You've not set us up to take things on our own, but your strength is our 
confidence. God, it is so hard at times to move forward even a step at a time without knowing exactly what happens next, without knowing what to do. Um, But God, you've called us into dependency. You've called us into reliance, not on armor, not on weapons, not on self, but on you. Please give us the strength to do that. The discipline and discernment to learn your promises, to know them deeply so that we may live out of them, being faithful to you. In precious name we pray.